about this launch that's happening. Um, it is my honor to be part of creating these kind of resources for churches across the nation. You should know that Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City is also beginning, uh, 5,000 members doing this together. And so what we're trying to do at the Institute for Bible Reading is change the way people read the Bible. It's our contention that actually there's a centuries-long practice of snacking on the Bible rather than feasting on the Bible. And part of it has to do with what we've done with the physical shape of the text itself. We've been messing with the Bible for several centuries, adding things that weren't there originally. And so now that we're getting back to a more organic or natural form of the Bible, we think it's easier for people to start feasting. And that way the Bible can be the force in the world that God always intended for it to be. So that's the journey we're going to go on this morning. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the history of the Bible as a book, and then invite you to a way to ongoing feasting in the Bible so that you can live the story of the Bible from this point on. But let's begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We do believe that it's a gift to us that you gave it to us for a purpose, that you shared your wisdom, your story of yourself and the world, what you're doing in the world to bring it to the place that you want it to be, what you're doing in our lives to bring us to where you want us to be, that all of this comes to us from the Bible. The Bible is where we learn the story of Jesus. It's where we learn the story that Jesus was born into. It's where we read about the outpouring of the Spirit. And we know that all of that is happening to us as well. We are followers of Jesus. We also have had the Spirit poured out on us in order that we can be your people in the world. But we also know that to do that well, we can't just say we love the Bible. We have to begin feasting on the Bible regularly so that it can be the food that our souls need to know who you are, and what we're supposed to be doing in the world. May we be once again people of the book as we used to be known. We pray this in Jesus' name, who is our brother and our king. Amen. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. And the Lord said to Jeremiah, I want you to get a scroll and write down everything I've been telling you since the beginning of your ministry. All the oracles, all the warnings, all the words. Because maybe, maybe if my people hear everything you've been telling them for all these years, maybe they will listen and maybe they will turn and maybe I will yet relent from the disaster I am about to bring upon them. So Jeremiah found Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe. And Jeremiah dictated to Baruch, who wrote the words down on a scroll, all the words that he'd been saying all those years. And Baruch took the words on that scroll and he went to the new gate in the temple. And on a day of fasting, 
when all the people from the countryside of Judea came into Jerusalem to worship at the temple, to offer sacrifices, Baruch the scribe read the words of Jeremiah the prophet. He read all of them. The first copy, you might say, of the book of Jeremiah. One thing we should notice at this point in the story is that apparently Jeremiah was not an author in the modern sense of the word. Jeremiah had not been sitting off in some cabin in the woods off the slope of Pikes Peak and writing a book. Jeremiah had been out on the streets speaking truth to power, standing at the city gate, delivering the oracles of the Lord, and an unpopular message at that. Jeremiah had been orally delivering the messages to the king and to his nobles, to the people. He hadn't written a single word. It's interesting. The Bible became a book over time. And the Bible was subject to everything that's, that anything in the real world is subject to. As we continue our story, Baruch read all the words of Jeremiah the prophet to the people, and the son of the secretary to the king heard all the words being proclaimed. And as he heard, he was shocked and saddened and worried. And so he ran and told all the king's officials, Baruch the scribe is reading the words of Jeremiah to all the people as they come into the temple. And so the scribes, the king's officials, sent for Baruch, brought him to them, and had him read to them all the words of Jeremiah the prophet. And the officials became worried and said, Baruch, where did you get this? He said, Jeremiah gave me these words. He said, you go hide yourself and hide Jeremiah because we have to take this message to the king. So the officials of Jehoiakim brought the message to the king. It was winter. He was in his winter apartment, sitting on his chair with a little fire pot going. And as the words of Jeremiah the prophet, warning Jehoiakim himself, warning the people to return to God, or he was going to raise up Babylon to come and destroy them, as the scrolls being read, King Jehoiakim takes out his little knife and cuts off slices of the, the scroll and throws them into the fire pot that's sitting at his feet. So that by the time the scribe finishes reading the entire scroll and the king throws the last piece into the fire pot, there is no more book of Jeremiah. One copy existed and now it's gone. So in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah again. And the Lord said to Jeremiah, I saw what King Jehoiakim did. So I want you to take Baruch the scribe and have him write down all the words I've given you since the beginning of your ministry once again. Print-on-demand technology in the early centuries before Christ. Right? Slow and laborious process. But the copy is produced again. It becomes part of the scriptures of Israel. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, tell these words to the people again. And oh, by the way, tell King Jehoiakim 
in particular, that he will fail to have a son to sit on the throne after him. He and his family in particular will be judged. I love it that this story is in the scripture. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah actually has this story within it so that we get a little window, which we so rarely do, of how the Bible actually came into being. Just to, to realize that, look, when the first, this first piece of the Bible was produced, it was destroyed by somebody who didn't want anything to do with that message, who didn't want to hear it. It's like Moses coming down the mountain with the commandments on those tablets. Another first edition of the Bible right there, right? Smashes them into pieces and it has to be redone. See, the Bible enters the real world. I love those stories because what it tells us is the Bible is not a book that just dropped from heaven as a complete book in the King James English forever to be preserved and not touched, right? The Bible is real. It came into real human history, written by real people, and it's subject to all the processes and dangers that go with life in this world. Another example, the ending of the Gospel of Mark. If the Bible you read is honest, it might have a note at the end of Mark's Gospel that actually with the manuscripts that we have, we're not really exactly 100% sure of what the ending of Mark's gospel is. There are multiple endings given in different manuscripts. And so the New Living Translation um, includes a note that actually includes two different endings and tells you we're not sure which one was the end. The NIV has the same kind of note. Now, if you think about the gospel of Mark being written on a scroll that opened horizontally and was rolled up, what part of that scroll is most likely to be damaged? The outer edge, right? That's where the ending of the Gospel of Mark would have been. So it makes sense that we lost the original ending to Mark's Gospel. Now, is this devastating for the Bible? Is it devastating for Jeremiah's message that the first copy got cut up and thrown into a fire pot by an angry king? It isn't. God made sure the Bible is everything we need and everything he wanted to do the job he wants it to do in the world and in our lives. But it's important. It's important for us to realize that the Bible is a human book written by real people in real human history as much as it's a divine book. We always talk about the Bible as the word of God, and it surely is. It's inspired and infused by his spirit to do things in the world. But it's important to remember it's also a human book written by real human people. Paul wrote letters. Paul got angry. He got angry when he wrote letters, right? One of the things we notice in the letter to the Galatians is that one of the standard parts of an ancient letter was omitted. It was common in the Roman Empire when you wrote a letter for it to have three parts. You would name who's writing, you would name who the recipients are, and then you always included words of gracious greeting and even thanksgiving for your audience before you got into the body of your letter. Why is this a big deal? Because Paul was so mad at the Galatians. He's so angry after he names himself and his audience, the recipients, he skips the words of blessing and thanksgiving. It goes right into his angry diatribe because they're forgetting what the gospel itself is. And if you see a Bible that shows the three parts of an ancient letter, 
the, the omission of that Thanksgiving part is glaring to you, and it would have been shameful to be in the audience and say, this is a letter from Paul. He didn't even say the standard word of Thanksgiving for us. That's how angry he is with us. So Paul's message is heightened by the form of the letter that we see him write. And this is true across the Bible. One of the messages I want you to get today is that the Bible is a real book for real people in the real world. And that's the way God intended it to be. Just like our doctrine of Jesus himself, it's not enough to say Jesus was God. Jesus had to be fully human to play his part in the story that God wanted him to play. So the divinity and the humanity together, that's the way it is with the Bible. The Spirit of God inspiring and, and, in, and incorporating, infusing the Bible itself. But real human people in real human situations with everything that that means, that means the Bible is a book for the real world. It's not a book for just holy people who want to sit in holy places and just be separate from the world. It's a book for the real world. So the whole Bible came together this way. It was oral before it was written. This is important to know that the stories of Jesus, for instance, were passed down orally before they were written down. All right, this is like, this is like things being handed down by people who knew to remember. Sometimes people say, well, doesn't that make it like inaccurate? How could people remember things? We're no good at remembering things because we can pull out our phones. We don't even know our own address or phone numbers anymore because everything is with a button, right? Try to call your, yourself by, by punching the numbers. It's like, I don't know what it is. I just hit a name or I say the name and it, somebody, I call somebody. Oral tradition goes like this. This is a story. Joshua mentioned my grandchildren. I should show you photos, but I won't do that. When I read my granddaughter Jessa a story, and she wants me to keep reading the same story. My wife Jane has the same, same situation. There's certain favorite books that Jessa has. So you read those stories, and I had this same situation with my own sons when I would read them stories, and they chose their favorite. And sometimes, like, I get tired of that story. So I try to change or skip over. Like, let's skip that part, right? Let's skip to the end. But Jessa wants to hear everything that's, she knows that story because she's heard it repeatedly and she wants to hear every word. She wants to hear every page. You can't skip to the end. That's how oral tradition was in the ancient world. People lived by oral tradition. Only a fraction of the people could read and write. So writing everything down was not a big deal because oral tradition was firm. When somebody in a village said, remember when Jesus came through and he said this? Everybody would remember, and that would be an oral tradition in that village, and people would know. If the story was mistold or misrepresented in some way, people would say, no, 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 that's not how it went. Just like Jessa will say, no, 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 that, you're skipping a part. Get back and read that. People in that village, would, they would know that's how oral tradition worked. It's only with the development of technology, first writing and then electronic, that our brains have become mush. We've forgotten how to remember things deeply and well, big chunks of things. But in the ancient world, if we understand it on its own term, that's how it worked. That's how the Bible was born, by people passing on stories orally, people remembering, and then they came to be written down. Of course, first they were written on scrolls, these papyrus things, fragile, 
Like that ending to the Gospel of Mark. You could lose them easily. Pieces of it could break off. When, if you've ever seen photographs of ancient Bible manuscripts, many of them just come in pieces. You get, a, you get a bit of it here. You look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. You get a piece of it there, a little bit of it there. And, and they piece it together by having multiple editions of these scrolls. They can figure out what the whole book said. This was fragile technology. So eventually, the technology changed into the codex form, which would, we would recognize as a book. Although they weren't using paper for pages. They were using things like animal skins to write on. Very thick. And so as the Bible came into being and technology changed as history went on, the history of the Bible in many ways is a history of the change of technology of communication. So there you go. So the Christians actually were at the forefront of the development of codex technology. They kind of favored this technology. Maybe one reason is because if you have a book form with covers, it protects the writings more and also, you can say, these are the writings that we consider sacred, whereas if you have a basket full of scrolls, anybody can kind of put anything in there. And, and there were alternative stories to Jesus, for instance, that weren't around, like the Gospel of Mary or the Gospel of Thomas. What if somebody put that story into the basket of scrolls that you kept? So the codex form allowed you to form a more definite barrier Kind of, these are the stories that we believe God has inspired that all God's people use, and these other ones are not in there. So technology happens. Another thing that happens as the Bible develops in time, interestingly, is people become more than scribes with just putting down the words. They start doing stuff to the text. And I guess it's a pretty good sign, actually, that the Bible is the kind of story that inspired people to mess with the words a little bit. They start, the scribes start writing comments in the margins. They start highlighting certain words more than other words. They kind of wrote the name of Jesus sometimes in different color ink, for instance, to highlight it on the page. So cool stuff, right? And as long as the comments, for instance, stay outside the text and are written in the margin, everybody knows what's the sacred text and what's somebody's commentary on the text. That's cool. But... The thing that happens is we started adding more and more and more and more until eventually it got hard to see the original Bible for what it was. In the 13th century, we added chapter numbers, at least the chapter number system we know today. So think about that for a minute. Just think of a Bible text without chapters or verses, which came even later, that the church had a Bible without that for 1,200 years. What? How do you use a Bible without chapters and verses for 1,200 years? It's unusable, right? What can you do with a Bible like that? Well, you could read it. <laughs> you could feast on the whole thing. Maybe, maybe you won't be so tempted to take a verse out of context if you can't find the verse, right? So 13th century Chapter numbers come in, the system that we knew. And actually, at the time, there were competing versions of chapter numbers. Some of them were broken down differently. One version has Matthew with 68 chapters, right, instead of our 28. So, so finally, this one version that we know got settled on is kind of the standard system of chapter numbers. It wasn't until 300 years later that the first person put verse numbers in the Bible. This is now the 16th century. 
What? 1,500 years the church had a Bible without verses? That's amazing. So this strange historical moment happened in the 16th century. 100 years earlier, the printing press had been developed. It's a game changer for the Bible. Think about that. Before that, anybody who had a Bible had a handwritten Bible. Right? So you, you, anybody who, who was, would have any kind of Bible, and oftentimes it would be a book of Psalms or a gospel book and not the whole Bible, it was hard to fit the whole Bible into a single volume. It would be massive because the technology, again, is, is ancient, not modern paper. So people don't have access to the Bible. Hardly anybody has a copy for themselves. So the only way for 1,500 years the church experienced the Bible was by some kind of gathering in community. They couldn't go home and do their private quiet time. I apologize to any navigators in the room. Right? I mean, people couldn't even do that program. They, they couldn't go through their private devotions. If they're going to have any Bible in their life, it has to be going to church. Many of them can't read. They're listening. These gospel troops would go around and present Bible stories by acting them out in villages in the Middle Ages. People are getting Bible in various ways, but they're not going home and reading their Bible because there wasn't one. But then the printing press happens and they start mass producing Bibles for the very first time. So what else happened in this historical moment? Vernacular Bible translations start happening. Luther translates the Bible into German. English translations are coming to birth. Italian Bible translations. So we're starting to get Bibles in the language of the people, not just in the Latin and not just for the clergy of the Roman Catholic Church, the language of the people. Strangely, at this moment, when everyone can start to get a Bible for the very first time, they can go down to the village bookseller and actually get a Bible and read the Bible at home with their family. Game changer in the history of the Bible. The Bible is not just in Latin, it's in their own language. They never learned Latin. The, the Latin is the language of the church hierarchy. It's not the language of the people. Now they can read the Bible in their own words. But the Bible they're getting for this very first time, because it's happening at the same moment, is a chapter and verse Bible. And not only that, those very first chapter and verse Bibles, every single verse was turned into a separate paragraph. So those, those numbers, even if they came in the middle of a sentence, that, that sentence was set apart, indented, numbered, so it looks for all the world like a standalone spiritual statement meant to be a little piece of truth from God. And the, the form of the Bible actually is encouraging you to read out of context. It's not encouraging you to read whole books. It's not encouraging you to feast. It doesn't allow you to see that there's poetry in the Bible, that there are stories in the Bible, that there are proverbs in the Bible and wisdom books and letters and apocalypses, all these different literary forms that God inspired the Bible to be are obliterated when we have two columns, indented verses, and chapter and verse Bibles. But that's, those are the first modern Bibles that everybody could get their hands on. So what happened is, ever since the 16th century, we've developed ways of using the Bible that are not based on feasting. They're based on snacking 
on what Philip Yancey calls Scripture McNuggets. <laughs> right? He says, we've developed an entire culture of Scripture McNuggets and believing that they're nutritional and they're just as good as a full meal. He says, they're, they're, they're McNuggets. He's like, that's God. If God had wanted that, you know, wanted the Bible to be that, he could have given us that, but why did God give us songs? When I see song lyrics on a page, my brain is immediately tuned into reading that differently than reading an instructional letter. I expect poetry to use certain kinds of language and to do certain kinds of things. Poetry does some things more powerfully than an instructional letter can do. But an instructional letter can make distinction and be more clarifying in teaching things. Poetry uses the powerful language of metaphor and imagery that can move me emotionally. God uses that in the Psalms. These are song lyrics. They're, they're the songbook of ancient Israel. Little wisdom proverbs, something I can read and get a, a little bit of reality taught to me by this little wisdom, punchy little pithy saying. Right? The stories of Jesus. Why do we have four gospels? If we never sit down and read a whole gospel, right? If we're always jumping around day by day in our daily devotionals, always a little piece here, a verse from Luke, then something from Philippians, and la la la, we're jumping around. Why do we have four Gospels? I'll never understand the differences between the four Gospels if I don't sit down and read a whole Gospel. Matthew is doing something very different from Mark and Luke and John. But this is invisible to me if I never read whole books. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where is that found? It's found in Philippians. If I don't read Paul's letter to the Philippians and realize he's writing from jail... And that really a better translation would be, I can do all this through God, through Christ who strengthens me. Well, what is this? I have to read the paragraph. I have to understand what is Paul saying to this church in the midst of his deprivation, right? It doesn't mean Paul is winning at life. He's sitting in a prison cell in Rome. He's not winning at life. He's a loser, right? He's losing the way Jesus lost because that's the cruciform way of life that God's teaching us. So when he says, I can do all things or all of this, he's talking about the strength that carries him through all his struggles, not that there won't be any struggles or that he's going to win football games, which is also how we use that phrase. All right? Reading in context is the thing. Reading in context is so often not done the way we use the Bible. It's time for us to undo the Bible paradigms that have been in place now ever since the early Reformation period. For centuries, we've been fine-tuning this way of using the Bible in little pieces. It's time for us to get back to reading the books that God inspired. So as, as we go back, and, and you know, the thing with this is, this form of the Bible is actually closer to the way this Bible originally was given. So we have to have a distinction, which as Protestants we would do, a very good and clear distinction between tradition and Scripture. And we need to realize that much of what we find in our modern reference Bible, which was built for referencing, not for reading, right? A book that looks like a dictionary will be used like a dictionary. A book that looks like a Wikipedia entry or an encyclopedia will be used like that, whereas a book that looks like literature can be received on the basis of 
that the author inspired it. C.S. Lewis was the one who said, the first obligation we have with regard to any piece of literature, including the Bible, is to receive it on its own terms before we begin to use it. How often do we come to the Bible and say, look, I have my agenda, right? I have my life. My life needs this kind of help. So I'm looking for this today. I want to do research on this topic. So I'm coming to the Bible with my agenda already in place, looking for what I'm looking for, doing what I want to do, because I'm me, and I know what I need. C.S. Lewis says, no. He says, that's not how you approach a piece of literature. The first thing you do is you humbly receive it. You clear your mind of your own agenda. If you want to be a virtuous reader, a good reader, you put yourself back and you just say, let me read the whole thing. Let me read what this author is trying to say and receive it. And yes, eventually, we can use that for something, right? We don't have to stay in that mode, but it's where we have to start. It's okay to do topical studies on the Bible, jumping around looking for what the Bible says on this topic across many different books. Although every single entry that we find there needs to be read in context, which is the problem I have with cross-reference Bibles, is the encouragement is, the implied use there, is that if I just find a verse and then find five cross-references in the center margin and, and I jump and read all those, the tendency is to read each one of those out of context without knowing what it means, what kind of writing it is, and getting the full meaning of that before I go on to the next one. When I have five of them, I just want to read the verse and I put them together and voila, I have the Bible's view of, say, marriage. Except you don't, right? If I go look up all the verses on marriage in the Bible and put them together, what do I get? You get confusion. Because actually, if the Bible, if we're serious about recognizing that the Bible is a story, and stories move on, that God's word at certain points in the story is, are not always God's final answer, right? God calls Abraham. God has something in mind for Abraham, and he's, he's telling him what he, Abraham needs to know to fulfill the role that God has for Abraham at that point in the story. He's not particularly concerned at that point about polygamy. So if I go to the patriarchs to get my theology of marriage, Right? I'm going to get off a little bit. It's interesting to know that the patriarchs in the stories, none of them fit the New Testament criteria for church office. Really? It's because the Bible is a story, and God doesn't reveal everything at once. He's revealing more light as the story goes along. Preeminently, he reveals it in the story of Jesus. Jesus is the clearest representation of who God is. So the way to read the Bible is as a story of progressing light, more light being shed, more being learned about how God wants the world to be and us to play our role, especially in the story of Jesus. So we read and we especially know the story of Jesus, and in his light, we can make sense of the entire story. We don't verse jack, which sounds like a hard term, right? To hijack something is, is a hard thing. When somebody hijacks a plane or a car, they break in. It's an act of violence, actually, to break in and take over something for our own purposes. I, I hesitate to even say this, but sometimes we verse jack. We break into the Bible 
grab something and take it out for our own purposes, out of its context and original meaning. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Where is that from? Prophet Jeremiah. Who's he writing to? What's their situation? What does that word mean for them? It's not that we can't pull meaning from the Bible for our own lives here now. The Bible isn't just about learning ancient history, for sure. It's for us. We need to remember the distinction. The Bible isn't written to us, so it's not directly to us. It's directly to its first audience, but it's for us. The Bible is for us, but we can't skip that first step. What did that word mean for them then? For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you hope in a future. What did that mean for those people in exile? Then I can say, what does that mean for me? But if I skip that step, if I'm uninterested in what the Bible had to say to its first audience, I have no choice but to cherry pick the passages I like, right? This is another dangerous thing. If, if the Bible is just a book of like a bunch of stuff, but I've found the top 20 verses that really feed me, right, that really work for me, I'm cherry picking the parts that I like. That's a filter that's saying, I don't want to hear that, so I'm not going to pick that verse. I'll stick with these positive, encouraging verses because those are the ones I like. What about all those verses on correction and punishment? Are none of those for us? That was for, because the only people who needed correction were ancient Israel people, right? How come nobody ever picks Deuteronomy 28, 29? It's always Jeremiah 29, 11. Deuteronomy 28, 29 says, for you will be unsuccessful in everything you do. <laughs> you will be harassed and robbed with no one to rescue you. Right? How do I know that that verse isn't for me, but Jeremiah 29, 11 is for me? <laughs> right? I mean, what, what kind of book is the Bible if I'm cherry picking the parts I like? Is that the whole counsel of God? It isn't. Now, I'm not saying the takeaway is, you know, today you will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Go out with that word ringing in your ears. But we need to know why is that in there? If it's no good to us, why is that in the Bible? We need to say, well, what is that blessing and curses section of Deuteronomy all about? What does that mean for the people of God then? What does that mean for the people of God now? If I don't read the Bible in context and read whole books, I can't really receive the Bible that God has for us, that he gave us. The church has to start feasting on whole books. So this modern reference edition has kind of had its day. And what's exciting to me as a Bible publisher someone who's working on Bible engagement programs, is that almost every major translation is now is coming out in a reader's edition. No matter what translation you like, the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, the King James, the New King James, the New Christian Standard Bible, all of them are coming out in reader's editions, no chapters, no verses, single column, so you can just read. We can feast on the Bible once again. It's really reversing a 500-year-old publishing trend in the Bible world. It's an amazing thing that's happening. Now, because chapters and verses have been around a long time, it's probably a good idea to keep one on your shelf. And of course, in your electronic device, it's just a setting. So that's kind of sweet. You can turn them on or off, right? But when we're, when we're feasting on the Bible, we don't need the numbers. Just read it. Don't overanalyze every little bit. Just read it. Take it in. Learn the whole story. Learn how it works. And besides... 
there's this little uncomfortable fact that many of the chapter and verse breaks are in the wrong places, right? I mean, like the very first one is in the wrong place. What's up with that? There's two creation stories. Genesis 2 comes four lines off of where the first creation story ends. Like, really, are you reading while you're putting these numbers in there? Because that whole first creation story ends five verses after you put that chapter break. We always talk about Isaiah 53 being a thing. This servant song of Jesus, who will be the suffering servant, the Messiah. But Isaiah 53 isn't really a thing. That oracle begins halfway in Isaiah 52. So if we're reading by chapters, we're oftentimes reading the wrong places for the breaks that are naturally within the text. So get yourself a reading Bible. Read from it regularly. Use the reference Bible for referencing when you need to, for sure. It's very helpful. It's hard to find things. That's why those numbers were put in there in the first place. You can find the precise thing you need very quickly. It's useful. The problem is we've made it into that's the Bible we think we have to use all the time. You don't. Just read. Read and make reading your first thing and study your second thing. I think we've gotten that wrong since the Reformation. We've made it act like, you know, the people who are serious about the Bible, they're Bible study people. They're just always studying the Word, right? We've relegated reading to something like the children are to do. What if we said reading is the first and most natural thing to do with the Bible? What if that was first? And all of our Bible study is to be done in the context of having read deeply, read for length, read, read for the whole story. It's the story. It's the individual setting of each book. That's what gives the Bible its meaning and its place. So here's the thing. I'm so excited you guys are doing Immerse. I think for most people, it's like a brand new experience of the Bible. Like who's ever read the Bible this way? These Bibles haven't been around. Now we can read the whole books. We're reading every day for a significant amount. We're coming together once a week in a book club kind of experience rather than a Bible study experience, right? We're not just here gathered to look for the right answer that the curriculum is telling us to look for. We're just answering the big open-ended questions. What, what happened to you this week when you read? What, what especially was moving to you or insightful to you? Did anything bother you? Like this is honest Bible engagement, really digging into the Bible the way God gave it to us, and so the Bible can become the force that God meant for it to be in our lives, and that's really the end game. Like, why did God give us the Bible anyway? Like, what's the, what's the whole deal with the Bible? In, in scholarly language, they call it a speech act. That is, when you say words, but they do something in the world, right? We need to think of the Bible as God's speech act. What it means is, just like at a wedding, when, when a couple gets up there and they say, I do, are those just words? No. When, when a couple says, I do, in a wedding, things have changed in the world. There's now a commitment being made to another person. And so something in the world has changed because of my speech. That's the way God's speech is in the Bible. When God says things, it's transformative in the world. It's transformative in our lives. God is changing things in the world through his Bible. That's why it's so devastating if we don't know it. I hear people talking about Bibleless Christianity these days. I'm like, really? And they're talking about that like that's, that's a good thing. 
Like the Bible is so hard and complicated and prone to being misused, we can just live our Christian life without it. We can have Bibleless Christianity. I'm like, are you kidding me? What do you have if you don't have the scriptures? What do you think you know about Jesus that you didn't learn from the scriptures? What do you think you know about what God's doing in the world? What do you, I mean, the whole thing, it's not that we worship the Bible, we worship God. But God chose to reveal himself through these words and they're sacred and powerful. They do things in the world. They're God's speech act. So if we want the Bible to be the speech act that God always meant for it to be, we have to do our part to receive it. Because remarkably, because we're human beings, God has given us the power to harm that mission of the Bible if we choose to. I mean, the Bible doesn't sit here and magically just, you know, transport itself into my mind, right? It's not Vulcan. <laughs> the Bible has to be used. It has to be read and engaged on its own terms for it to have the effect that God wants it to have in the world. It's, it's a partnership between God and us. If we misuse the Bible, we, we hurt God's mission for the Bible in the world. If we accept the Bible on its own terms, the way God gave it to us, and we're, we're just immersed in the Bible, we marinate in the Bible, then we know how to live its story. And let me close with this. This is how we end up like using the Bible to be the people that God wants us to be. So I said we feast on books. So the new regular practice for Christians who are serious about the Bible is not just to engage in Bible study, but to regularly be feasting on whole books. Some of them you can read easily in one setting, right? Philemon, Ruth, the letter to the Philippians, they take minutes to read. Some of them are bigger, so you don't have to read the whole book in one sitting, but you should be regularly working your way through whole books. Whole books are the foundational, inspired, original units of the Bible. So you read whole books. But the Bible isn't just a collection of these books. The books come together to tell the story of God and the world, especially the story centered in Jesus. So we learn to read the Bible as this story. And then there's this. It's an unfinished story. So it's not like reading about ancient Rome, right? We're not just historians. We're just interested in the story of ancient Israel for whatever, you know, it's just our thing. We like that. No, it's because the Bible is inviting us into exactly the same story that it tells. And that story isn't finished. The story ends with the churches at the end of the first century, but the ending of the story hasn't happened yet. We live in that unfinished space at the end of the story of the Bible. That's where we live. That's our story. If we don't think we're living that story, what story do we think we're living? Where did we get our story from? Everybody lives their life according to some story. What story do you think you're living? We are living the unfinished story of the scriptures. So... The thing to do with the Bible is, if we think of the Bible as a script, what we do is we immerse ourselves deeply in this script, not because we can find our lines for the day in there, right? These aren't our lines. These are the lines of God's ancient people. So what we can do is become so familiar with this story that we improvise our part well. Now, that can be a scary word for people, improvise, really? I like it better to have an answer book Bible, where whatever question I have, I just look up the right answer and that settles it, right? I don't have to think about it because God said it, I do it, that settles it. Except that he said it to those people then. 
in a slightly different situation than our modern world. When my father was dying a couple years ago and there was medical technology involved, there's a question that comes up. How much medical intervention do you pursue on someone who is clearly dying, right? Can you artificially keep them alive for a long time? Yes. Is that the right thing to do? We value life. We don't want life to end, but are we artificially continuing a bodily life that isn't really the life that, that you know, someone who's started the process of dying, should you do these radical medical interventions? So where's the passage in the Bible? Chapter and verse, I need to know where I get the answer to that question. There is no answer to that question in the Bible directly. So what I have to do as someone who's striving to live this story of Jesus is to say, how do I improvise the trajectory of the gospel of Jesus that is restoration and life for the world? How do I be a faithful follower of Jesus in my moment? We live at a different time, but it's the same story we're living. So what does the gospel look like in this world today? And so I commission you, the Springs Church gospel players, right? You are gospel players in our world. You are people who are going to be so immersed in this book that you just know it in your bones. So when you play out your community life and your individual lives in this world, you know what to do because you are people of the book. I wish you the best on this journey, this amazing journey of immerse. And I'm going to be excited to follow up at the end and, and hear what's been happening in this congregation. God's word is powerful, but only if we receive it on its own terms. Thank you very much.